0: Welcome to the Metabolic Health Podcast, the show which helps listeners drop fat, increase muscle mass, and most importantly, prevent or even reverse lifestyle-driven diseases. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Andrew Appleton, as we dive into the root of obesity, diabetes, neurological disorders, and even many cancers. Yes, these are all preventable diseases driven by various lifestyle choices that you can do something about today. Our podcast aims to take complex health topics and turn them into easily digestible information with a practical viewpoint so you can take meaningful actions right now. So join us as we do our part to reestablish the core value of health back to our community. We're live. This mic is hot. I find uh, I like the contrast of your variety of diplomas and things on your wall and uh, jerseys on mine. Right. (laughs) I think it tells pretty much the story. (laughs) It it immediately makes me less qualified to have this conversation. Yeah, but
1: the camera is so far out, you can't really tell what's on those diplomas, right? Oh, perfect. Yeah, yeah I, I suppose. So, I mean, you can you can guess exactly. More importantly, I've got my children's artwork over here, which is I've got some in yeah. here too, which I mean, I don't
0: really know who that's for. Exactly. I don't, I don't think I've looked at it since it's been put up there. Just yeah. a reminder that I do I do have kids. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen them, by the way, but that's yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, right, well, you wanted to to do this one, so you you're probably more appropriate to kick it off.
1: Yeah, so we're recording this remotely just because I'm on call at the hospital right now. Um, but you know, I, I felt that there was some urgency to uh, to record something with everything that's changing with the COVID landscape right now as we head into the holidays. Um, so I just wanted to chat about that for a bit and then uh, talk about some holiday nutrition stuff. Sure. Um, you know, obviously we have a massive, uh, audience following at at this point. So, you know, deviating this early on, uh, from our, our regular scheduled program is, uh, you know, I guess potentially risky, but, uh, anyway, it's just an add on. I felt it was worthwhile. Yeah. Um, I came up with a new term. Great. (laughs) (laughs) It's called Oma Christmas.
0: (laughs) Someone, someone's going to pick that up. Someone's going to pick that up. Yeah. So how, how, how are your Omicron Christmas plans coming together? It's not going to change anything for okay. us at all. <laughs> it's not like we'd ever have a, not, I don't want to get too far ahead of things here because I'm not really sure how much I care about Omicron if at all, but let's pretend that it's even something to to consider. We wouldn't have any big gatherings anyways. So um, Christmas Eve, we'll be hosting my immediate family that lives here in the city with us. Well, at least uh, a portion of my immediate family lives lives here, and then uh, Boxing Day, Laura's family will come and we'll host Boxing Day. So, yeah, between hosting those two events, I mean, one is is too much sometimes <laughs> so just get yeah. through the 24th to the 26th and then uh and real life can begin again after that sure yeah. <laughs> yourself
1: yeah so we we were actually planning uh this coming saturday to to have a neighborhood uh open house like we traditionally used to do obviously it was canceled last year um and then we've we've just had to cancel that um, again because we you know we would be we were going to be up to the the standard you know, gathering limits recommended at, at present time, but um, you know it's 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 just not worth it at this point um, to have that many people. Um, and you know it, the reasoning for that, and here here's where I want to just be clear for everybody: the reason for that is not because I'm worried about the risk of COVID for the people attending a party like that. The reason is because of the quarantine and isolation guidelines. If anybody were to test positive and then be seen as a close contact, then you're in isolation for 10 days. And that's going to be mandated regardless of your vaccination status. And that's you know hugely detrimental if as a result of hosting a party that one of your guests has to do that. So then they're quarantining through the holidays, missing work. Um, and it's it's just... Know, it, it's unfortunate that that we're in this place
0: now. Um, yeah, I, I kind of want to jump in there for a second. So can you talk now about how your professional duties uh, and responsibilities might differ from your personal feelings?, uh, you can you can talk about what's currently happening with the rise of a new variant as well as traditionally throughout this entire process. And then also there is, <clears throat> there is the law, or at least the current law, I don't know if you can actually call it law at this point, but whatever parameters you're supposed to follow within, you know, your community within government guidelines, where how closely are those different parts of your life aligned? And where they're not aligned? Can you talk a little bit about how they may not line up exactly?
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't really draw a distinction, honestly. Um, I consider myself, you know, mainly a citizen. <laughs> um, obviously, you don't want to be, you know, seen as a, a physician who's, you know, outside of the bounds of, of the rules or anything like that, that wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't go well. Um, but yeah, I, I, I still just look at it as any, I think any other person would want to in terms of, I'm assessing the risk for myself, my family, my friends, people that we might get together with. Um, and how that would affect us or, or them and just trying to be fair to everybody, understanding that there are certain things that are outside of our control, such as the guidelines uh, that are currently in place, which is a really confusing thing right now, I think. So we're still technically in, in Ontario. We're still in stage three of the reopening plan, which would say, you know, indoor gatherings up to 25 people if for an individual event or for private event. Um but then we, in our health unit, we've gotten a letter of recommendation from our, uh, our medical officer of health stating that that limit should probably be 10. Um, but it's not clear that there's any teeth to that. Uh, so I don't really know how people are going to interpret that information. In other jurisdictions and other health units, um, you know, they have actually enforced down to five, like in uh, the Kingston area, for example. And I think that one, if you were found to be outside of those limits, then uh, you actually would face some sort of sanctions. So it's it's just it's a real patchwork right now, and I think that's where everybody's looking to the provincial authorities to say, can we just have some unified uh, guidance on this? Like what what can we uh, what can we not do? Um, so everybody just, you need that sort of assurance to, to know whether or not you're inbounds or, or out of bounds. Um, but none of that has anything to do with whether or not we should be doing these things and, and whether or not it's reasonable based on the actual level of risk. I guess that's my
0: actual question. If we yeah, want to get yeah. specific, cause you I mentioned it, it was, and you I, I gave you a three minute <laughs> intro into that yeah <laughs> hey you got to cover your ass and tick your boxes so i guess the, because you mentioned uh and you can correct me here because i'm 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 ad-libbing a little bit but you're you're essentially saying that the precautions that you are planning to take over christmas have less to do with the actual health risk and more to do with the inconvenience of potential restrictions that come from there. Yep. And I think this is the battle that you see right now uh, between people, between citizens and certain professions, between all citizens and public health, is it's very difficult to see how most of the restrictions put in place have actually contributed to a healthier better protected society and i would say that it's that it's even more clear to assess the damage that has happened now and we'll probably not see the total scale of for you know 5 to 10 years with these restrictions that are put in place and in Speaking as someone who's on the outside of all this to some degree, I try to be as informed and educated as possible, but I am just a citizen. I'm not a professional. I don't work in public health. I don't operate at the governmental level. But the longer this has gone on, the more disconnected I see the measures from the thing that we're actually trying to achieve and the more irresponsible and incapable I Find our leadership in these places to be. And the conflation between public health and politics, which has conflated medicine with politics and vaccines and medications with politics is destroying trust in public health systems. And I think rightfully so. And, I, and, and that's my opinion, right? I'm speaking from how I see this whole thing and how it's gone. But In your position as a physician who's probably seen a lot more people actually sick, seeing people die, seeing the the worst of the worst of the disease, you might have a more well-rounded perspective of how all of this has unfolded. So I know there's a lot there, but can you kind of generalize from, from the beginning until now? what your professional and personal perspective on all of this has been. And if you've seen any disconnect between what is helpful rather than just people who probably shouldn't have as much power as they do, perhaps going a little bit overboard, even if pure incompetence is the base reason for why some things have gone so poorly. Yeah. I I don't think incompetence factors in
1: a lot. Um, I think politics and and different incentives and influences are kind of reign supreme but let, let me just so I can give you a bit of background on my personal experience and perspective so this time last year we were in the middle of an outbreak in my institution on our unit uh so from November to January we were in outbreak and we there was uh healthcare worker to healthcare worker transmission. There was patient to patient transmission and it was bad. It was a nasty, nasty scene. I was you know, coming in every day and literally a new patient every day was, was getting COVID. We couldn't stop it. They were getting really sick. And these are people that were already sick to begin with, right? They're older, lots of comorbidities, in hospital for completely unrelated reasons. And we were unable to protect them from getting COVID and in many cases dying. And that was, that was horrible. We were not able to protect the most vulnerable citizens among us. Same story in long-term care at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, so I have seen firsthand exactly what this can do. And, you know, because of my exposure in that circumstance, you know, I was one of the first people to get vaccinated, uh, literally on the second day that they offered vaccines in, in London, Christmas Eve last year, I got my first dose. Um, so, you know, I, I know firsthand and based on that, the message I really want to get across to people is the level of risk is totally different now. It is far, far less of a concern now than it was this time last year, mainly because of vaccinations and you know natural immunity to to some extent. So the vast majority of people have gone out and done what they need to do, uh, the responsible thing to do to get vaccinated to protect themselves and protect people around them. and that has dramatically decreased. Transmission and dramatically decreased, most importantly, hospitalizations and death, the most severe outcomes. So now in the face of a new variant, you know, the the calculus changes. And this is where I think the messaging from mainstream media and political groups is falling flat, and that it's still overly sensationalized, fear-based messaging. And for our listeners, what I just really want to underscore is, you know, don't be scared. And I really hope that this is not causing a lot of excess anxiety for people, uh, because that's the worst possible place we can be. And I really, really hope that this doesn't actually lead to uh, lockdowns, school closures, etc. cetera, because at this point, it's probably going to do very little good and uh, certainly will cause harm. Uh, To to the groups
0: subjected to those measures. So I'm just sorry if it looks like I'm not paying attention here. I'm looking for something that's just (laughs) Just totally lost interest (laughs) with all of that. I'm looking for something that uh, this is from an article and I'm sure you're aware of uh, who Dr. Peter Juni is for those yeah. listening he's the uh, head of the uh science advisory table are you are you, you
1: journalisting me right now <laughs>
0: <laughs> i am a little bit i'm not the uh i'm not the source journalist i'm doing journalism <laughs> on the journalist so this is this just speaks to and this is uh of course this is from an article so this is all paraphrased but quoted uh so you know there could be some things within the gaps that make this sound less awful than i think it does But I'll just read you uh, these two short paragraphs, the head of Ontario's science advisory table says that the notion that Omicron variant is mild is a myth, and that people needed to stop their quote unquote wishful thinking this despite the variant skyrocketing numbers with just one person in the world at the time of this print, uh, having died with Omicron, this is historical. This is unprecedented. This week, Omicron will become the dominant variant in the province. People cannot imagine the sheer scale of what we are talking about here. It is really challenging, says Dr. Peter Juni, so on and so forth. Go ahead. Yeah, you're going to say something there. That sounds frightening. Yes. And this is the type of stuff that, you know, understandably makes the top of the headlines. Yeah, exactly. Because it's I mean, that that's what gets clicks and, and uh,
1: gets your articles read. Absolutely. So um, yeah, there's a lot of subjective language, right? Like, like a term like myth. I I don't, I don't know how to, how to sort that out in, in a scientific objective manner. I mean, it, it, using the word myth, it suggests that um, there's something intentional going on to to mislead or obf- obfuscate you know, what's actually happening, and I, I don't think that's that's the case whatsoever. So, I mean, I, we just look to what what do we actually know? What's what's objective? What's what is the data telling us at this point? We're still really early on in detecting uh, this variant uh, initially in South Africa. Um, all of the data to this point would suggest that it spreads more easily but it's probably a milder uh, infection. So that's good. I mean, yeah, so more people might get it, but if it's not causing uh, hospitalizations and severe illness at the rate of uh, like Delta, for example, um, then that's a net positive. So, and, and we know that there's early studies suggesting that uh, immunity from vaccines uh, does still give us some protection. So, you know, there was uh, data released yesterday, uh, I think, from Pfizer, you know, from the pharmaceutical company, yes, absolutely. Um, but in double vaccinated people, there was still an estimate of about 70% protection from severe disease. So, you know, 95% from Delta and previous, uh, previous strains, 70% with this one. So that's a lot more than nothing um that's actually great and so the logic there would be well let's get as many people boosted as possible jack up those uh, immunity numbers a little bit more and, and maybe we can improve that and you know i that's that's where that's where we're going certainly you know a, a larger chunk of the ontario population just became eligible for their third dose uh, in the 50 plus group, so that's great. You know, they're still the highest risk people because COVID uh, disproportionately affects older people. So to me, this is this is all great. You know, so why is it that public health is so worried? Well, it, it just comes down to projecting what the numbers might do, and the concern always has to be, are we going to overwhelm our healthcare system? Are we going to fill the hospitals with COVID patients? Are we going to have to you know, delay surgeries? Are other people not going to get their cancer treatments and other treatments because there's so many people with COVID that require um, treatment? Um, it's too early to say that, obviously. If you look at all the worst-case scenario modeling, then you can... You know, work yourself up pretty good. Um, and you know, if if you just look at it on absolute numbers, so it's milder, milder. That's great. But if it affects more people, then you might end up with as many or more people actually with severe disease. So let's you know look at an example. So if 100,000 people um, got the previous strain and five percent ended up in hospital, you know that's 5,000 people. If a million people end up getting this strain, so 10 times more, even if it's you know, only 1% of those people who end up in hospitals because it's milder, that's still 10,000 people, right? So it, uh, on an absolute basis, if it flies through the population, which it seems like it's probably going to do regardless of the measures we put in place, um, then sure, we're, we're definitely, we're going to see an uptick in, in hospitalization. We're going to see... Um, mortality from from this strain, uh, for sure. Uh, so then the question becomes, what are we willing to do? What are we willing to sacrifice in terms of uh, additional public health measures uh, to change that? And is that a net positive? And that's, that's where it's really difficult to show that you know really stringent lockdown measures,
0: closing schools are actually beneficial. So operating in a hospital, perhaps you have insight into this, because to me, that's, it's not that it isn't understandable having concerns about hospitals, ICU in particular, being at or above capacity and everything that comes along with that, right? The, the secondary effects that come from uh, filling up those spaces, but it's been two years of that problem With this specific virus, as well as decades of that problem in Ontario, where it's not like hospitals being at capacity is a new problem. So with all of these resources, time, energy, finances, we went into paying university students to paying university students to sit home, to shutting down small businesses and paying small business owners to not show up to work, all of these billions of billions of dollars that have gone to these places, what would have happened if those resources financially and otherwise were just allocated to innovating out of that problem? Because when I talk about Perhaps it's just an issue of incompetence. These are the things that I think of, but perhaps there's something that I'm missing. But I would think over the course of two years, you would have enough resources to make a difference in hospital and ICU capacity over that time, rather than just implementing all of these other solutions that aren't solutions at all, and in fact, are, are arguably harming people.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously we don't we don't know what the answer is is to that, but you you raise some some good points. You know, when it comes to infrastructure, the turnaround time on that, uh, you know, it it takes time. Um, but when there's you know, say a global pandemic going on, yeah, I think human beings are capable of pooling our resources and making stuff happen really fast. You know, and the, and the vaccines are an example of of just that. Uh, but when it comes to creating excess. Uh, hospital capacity, stockpiling, PPE, making sure there's enough uh, ventilators and warehouses should we need them. I mean, those are all really smart things to be doing. Um, I, I, it's not, And it's not clear to me how effectively we've done that. I, what I do know for sure is that, you know, in London, uh, they've just announced the decommissioning of the field hospital, um, which never actually got used uh, for patients. It's, you know, that facility has been used for the vaccination campaign. Um, but you know, in, in the face of this, in the most alarming language possible from our, you know, science advisory table, and uh, they're just going ahead with with decommissioning that building. So there's just so many mixed signals here that it's it's really hard to make um, heads or tails out of it. So all that being said, I, I think we should address, you know, what are what are the practical things that an individual or family can do? to continue to protect themselves and have a, have a nice holiday. I mean, every everybody deserves to have a, a good holiday break and have their kids go back to school in January. <laughs> um, so, so what should we be, be doing with that? So, I mean, the first is, is the gathering limits They talk, you know, so I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, uh, of lockdowns. Um, gathering limits. I think we can all be reasonable about that. And I would argue that there are certain non-essential things that are still seem to be okay right now that probably will be addressed soon, such as, you know, gatherings at concerts or large sporting events with hundreds or thousands of people um, that are not really essential things to do. In my opinion, getting together with your family, getting together with close friends is absolutely essential for human beings. I mean, we are social beings, we need positive relationships in our lives for well being. And we need to be able to do that. And we need to not feel like we're contravening the guidelines or we're breaking the rules, just by getting together with the people we care about most. So I really, really hope that, you know, everybody uses their practical judgment, but still is able to get together with their family. So the question is, how do you do that in the most safe uh, way possible? So uh, there's a couple of things. The first, the first thing is, is masks. Um, So when it it comes to masking, when you're out in public, uh, cloth masks are, you know, that's so 2020. So, (laughs) Cloth masks are out. Everybody and the public health agency of Canada has, has endorsed this, that everybody should basically be wearing a medical mask. And you can source those pretty easily now, uh, Amazon or, or whatever. You can, you can order those. So I, I would highly recommend that when you're out and about in public, uh, the best way to, to prevent unnecessary droplet spread is a uh, medical mask is much more effective than a cloth mask any comments on that?
0: (laughs) No, I, I, all I understand, or at least believe to understand about masks is that it's not a very straightforward thing, uh, both from, from the actual ability for masks to prevent spread, uh, just because of number one, the variance in quality, which you mentioned, but not just between cloth and surgical masks but between a surgical mask and a surgical mask that's actually tight on the face and worn properly versus an N95. And as you go down the scale from best practice to what's acceptable at the government level, there's high variance there. And for instance, I don't think there is a child in school who's going to school in a surgical mask because in my opinion, to put a... I have a problem with kids wearing masks in school in the first place. Like I only have one school age child and he's five. And I think it's absolutely insane that he goes to school in a mask. He wears a mask inside, outside, with his outside, with his class playing outside. He has to have a mask on. Like, to me, that is cruel to the point of it. Outside? I, I just outside, even oh, even really? in a separated cohort. So he is only outside with his class and he has to wear a mask outside. But all that aside, all those kids wear cloth masks because to put a surgical mask on a kid for six to seven hours a day is completely unreasonable for a child that age. It's not like you're asking a 14 year old to wear a mask to go to school. Uh, And then of course, aside from all that, there's the Potential issues of children that age of not seeing faces, not learning emotion, you know, not seeing their teacher's face, not seeing their pupil's face. But all that stuff aside, mandating masks does essentially very little because most people are either a not wearing a mask that's even proven to prevent the spread of a respiratory virus. Those who are probably are not wearing it properly, where there might be some effect, but not a strong effect. And you're looking at one percenters who are wearing the proper mask, the proper way in the proper places. So I I get your point that, that assuming that you're that you're that you're wearing the right mask the right way and you and the person on the other side are both doing that. I mean, I'm sure there's some range of effect all throughout, but at the same time, it's I, I feel, and I'm happy to wear a mask anywhere, anytime, even if I believed it had a 0% effect. I'm still going to yeah. wear a mask because it's a small thing to do that. Even if it just makes other people comfortable in this situation, yeah. that is yeah. completely I mean, fine by yeah, me. Wearing
1: wearing a mask is is really it's it's not a big deal. And if you think it's an affront to your personal freedom, then I mean you got other stuff going on. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I I take your point about the kids. I agree. And the the data on kids wearing masks is is basically absent. Um, and you know, for all of the you know unsubstantiable issues about language development and uh, and, you know, learning, learning, reading faces and emotions and everything else. Who knows? I mean, that, that will, maybe we'll figure that out. Maybe we won't, uh, when no one, no one can read <laughs> in, this, right. in this generation. I don't know. Um, but I mean, kids don't wear their masks properly. Um, they kids are kids. They get in each other's faces and um, they snot on their masks. Uh, you know, tell my, me about my it. Son comes <laughs> home and his mask is soaking wet and, uh, it's got like dirt on it. and it, yeah, so it's 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 probably not really doing anything. Um, plus kids aren't the high risk group anyway. So uh, yeah, I, and I think it's it's very questionable how much children are contributing to overall community spread. and you know, anything that I've seen is it suggests that it's very limited. This is the un, under adolescence. Once you're in adolescence, I think then it's it's reasonable to ask them to to mask up. But if there's one small thing you can do, then just make sure you get a good quality mask. That's that's basically all I'm saying. So if you're going to be masking anyway, don't wrap a T-shirt around your face. Just, you know, get, get a three-layer medical mask. So that's that. Um, rapid antigen tests. So I know you you do the rapid antigen test program in your workplace. Yeah. So for, for you and your employees to screen themselves to make sure that you're, you know, at least have some... Sort of reassurance that uh, you've screened positive that day, that you're showing up to work. So that program's good and available for people who who work in small businesses. Anybody who's got um, school age kids, uh, their kids will have come home recently or soon will uh, with a rapid antigen test kit. So uh, you know, my kids each came home with five of them. Uh, to use over the holidays, every, and they suggest, you know, every three to four days, just to make sure that everything's cool. I think that's, I think that's reasonable. Um, the problem is that these things are, are not easily accessible for uh, just personal use. So if you are going to have uh, a gathering, then doing a rapid test that day, a few hours before you go, uh, is probably a totally
0: reasonable thing to ask people to do. And if I valid, have a Sorry, I have a question about the uh, antigen tests, (laughs) Mm -hmm. particularly the ones that have been sent home uh, in Ontario schools, because I actually I, I made a post today about my son being sent home with rapid antigen tests over Christmas and said something along the lines of this should like as soon as these tests were available, this should have been the first thing they were doing in schools. Rather yep. than all of this other nonsense, cheap, reliable, rapid testing, which was available, should have been the first thing they were doing in schools. If there's an outbreak, test your child. If you think your child has some symptoms, test your child. It would have made all the difference uh, in the face of all these other things. Yep. And in posting that, I haven't looked at this myself, so I haven't been able to substantiate any of this. But in posting that, I got probably 30 responses to that post saying Uh, When people were reading the box, it was saying things like the test is essentially unreliable, false positives are high, this can't be like all of the typical warnings, right. So with this antigen test, how much of those warnings are warranted, what can the test do, what can it not do. And I, I just, you might have some insight into what the test is good for, what it's not good for, and what all of these different sorts of warnings, you know, yeah. some of them probably have to be put on there regardless of anything. Yeah, so we, yeah, exactly. They've, they've got to be on there. Um,
1: it's it's all imperfect, but we're, we're talking about layers of protection and assurances, right? So, Getting vaccinated is the most important layer. Wearing a mask is another important one. You know, being reasonable about your exposures um, in large group settings is another is another one. And then rapid antigen tests is yet another layer. And if you're if you're doing all of these things, then you stand the best possible chance of not contributing to the problem. You're still going to get COVID at some point. Just you know, just going to point that one out. Um, but we can certainly do our best without having to shut society down with all of these measures. So totally agree. Uh, the rapid antigen testing should just be part of the program of attending school. Uh, I think that's entirely reasonable, and um, you know maybe that would be a way for primary age kids to not have to mask. the The issue with how reliable the tests are. Um, so in, in medicine, we talk about sensitivity and specificity, which is basically, you know, how likely is it that a positive test uh, is, an, is a true positive and, or, uh, and vice versa with a negative test? Is it, is it true or not? So the sensitivity, which helps you to rule out an infection, is probably in an asymptomatic person, 30 to 50%. Okay, so if you get a negative test, um, there's, you know, a reasonable chance that that could be a false negative. Uh, and that's an asymptomatic person because these tests are developed to be used in symptomatic people. So the what we call the pretest probability, like the likelihood that you have the thing that you're testing for to begin with is already high enough. Whereas if you don't have any symptoms of anything, you know it's already unlikely that you have it. So if you test negative, then okay, is is that... Really, all that helpful? Well, I mean, now I know that there's at least a 50% chance that I definitely don't have it, and I'm not just carrying it as an asymptomatic person. So again, it's it's just it's adding to layers of of confidence that you can have going out into the world. And so if you're if you're going to to a, a gathering with people where you're going to be indoors, no masks on, um, you know, I'm vaccinated my rapid antigen test is negative, I feel really confident going into that setting and not feeling like I'm going to be spreading
0: something unknowingly to someone. I, w- I want to take a, a step back because I know when I assume when you're talking about interventions, you're talking about external interventions, medical or otherwise that you can take that will help protect you. Uh, but not only the nature of the podcast that we're doing right now, but also just general practice of being a healthy human being. As far as I understand, if you're under a certain age demographic, right, the elderly is a pretty general bracket, but it's clear that the older you are, the more susceptible you are to a negative outcome um, from COVID-19. And the younger you are, the far less susceptible you are to a negative outcome in COVID-19. And then the next biggest risk is going to be some sort of pre-existing condition, right? Uh, We saw this in... uh, in the mortality report in 2020, that uh, just over 80% of all 2020 COVID deaths were in long-term care facilities, where you know, a place like that, the median lifespan after entry into the facility is you know five to eight months. So these are people who are probably going into a facility. They're already at the end of life. They probably have a significant combination of different comorbidities. So there's not much you can do about being of a certain age. Uh, There's not much you can do about having a comorbidity this instant. But how large of a role does your level of health and fitness play? And I'm thinking more of the, the 12 year old to the 50 55 60 65 year old in that span because if you're if you're under the age of four and you have a comorbidity it's probably some sort of genetic defect um if you're at the end stage of life you're just there's a lot of things you're just not going to avoid something's going to get you so in that middle ground where it's people who could potentially do something where does that fall within your vaccination, mask wearing, all of these other uh, different sorts of precautions.
1: So I, I would still encourage everybody to take all of the precautions that they that they possibly can while still going about you know, a reasonable life, interacting with other human beings and able to go to work and be productive. Um, but definitely, yeah, we, we know that you know if you're if you're obese, uh, if you have asthma, diabetes, um, even just high blood pressure. Um, that is associated with worse outcomes should you get infected, and you will get infected. So, in, in those people, because your your baseline level of risk is higher, then that's even more motivation to protect yourself by getting vaccinated, get your booster when you're eligible to do so. Um, you know, wear the proper masks. If you can access the rapid antigen tests, use those in the appropriate scenarios. Um, we should absolutely be doing all of these things, but even more so if if you're known to have uh, some health concerns to begin with. Okay. And I, I would also say I I have a I have a theory <laughs> about you know the vaccine and people who react to the vaccine. So you know they've got fevers or uh, chills or body aches for a couple of days afterwards. Um, I don't know what percentage it is that have a significant reaction to it. Um, but I suspect that the people who have that reaction are, should be the most grateful that they got the vaccine because I I would anticipate that, uh, if they got the natural virus, then they would have a terrible immune response to that. And it's, it's not the virus that kills you. It's your body's, uh, unmitigated immune response going haywire that actually causes the damage. Uh, so if you're responding, if you're reacting that much to the vaccine, then that's great. I mean, that's, this is a good thing that you got this to protect yourself so that your body is ready to, uh, to go into action in a
0: less dangerous way, uh, when you're actually faced with the the virus. Yeah. I think that's a difficult thing to parse out on all levels because there seems to be a similarity between the nature of, reactions, adverse reactions to the vaccine and the nature of, of the disease. And, uh, there doesn't really appear to be a clear cut way Everything, to understand that. Any of the adverse reactions to the vaccine are way
1: worse with the virus, like full stop. It, it just, any, any, way that you can possibly react, any adverse event that you, you're, you could possibly get from the vaccine. There's a higher risk of an even worse reaction by getting COVID. So, I mean, there are very few circumstances where not being vaccinated
0: uh, is reasonable. So what is the, it, you know, being in the, uh, in the business that you're in uh, and, and the importance of vaccines and understanding the importance of vaccines in just public health in general, historically uh, within human beings and, and what they've been able to do what is the actual way out here? Because today I'm looking at the Ontario stats and you can see, That with the decline of the vaccine effectiveness for spread, not for uh, severe disease and death, but for spread. Exactly. Now, now is equal between vaccinated and unvaccinated. uh, Mm -hmm. And that's after, you know, making all the all the uh, proper population adjustments. But now as uh, the effectiveness to control spread is declining, now it's equal. Now, of course. Sure. But you're talking, you know, 10 percent are accounting for
1: 50 percent of the cases. Right which is still you know clearly there's still a significant protection advantage to being vaccinated.
0: Uh yeah, not and not for not for cases. Uh, as of uh, But but, but
1: there of, is because if you took a sample of the population, 9 out of 10 people are vaccinated, but 5 out of 10 of the cases are coming from the 10% group. So they're
0: they're you know way overrepresented in the actual cases. Right. So per- perhaps I uh perhaps i have a data error here a data error um, and now of course like I, if, if i took
1: a random sample of the population then if if the vaccine didn't matter then i would anticipate that you know nine out of ten cases should be vaccinated but if only four or five are vaccinated that are being new cases then, clearly the
0: vaccines are still offering a protective advantage. Yes, of course. I I I understand that. Um I'm I'm ballparking here, but I believe the most recent numbers out of Ontario for uh for weekly case rates uh for the last week was in vaccinated was over 800 and in unvaccinated was just over 100. And of course, this isn't taking into account the fact that uh the disease and death is greatly reduced beyond the uh beyond you know the four to six month quote-unquote antibody waning that you'll see uh, in various studies so even though antibodies seem to drop off a little bit more quickly uh, that doesn't appear to uh, affect the actual uh, effectiveness of the vaccine and the neutralizing
1: antibody thing is i mean it's it's not a a total indication of your body's immune response, right? So the, we can't really test for T cell immunity, which is the the memory cells, which is the far more potent, robust immune response uh, that you get from, from vaccination. Uh, but we just can't test for that. So all we can
0: test for is the antibodies. Right. So let's, uh, let's assume here that, that, <laughs> that I'm correct even if I'm not <laughs> and although hospital stretch most days but <laughs> and even though hospitalizations and deaths uh, let's let's take that out of account let's we know that 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 is making the the biggest difference and a significant difference. I'm talking more about, my concern of what measures are going to come using cases and increases in cases as the justification for, for shutting things down, for closing things, for getting, basically getting in people's business. That's what the government has done. Yeah. We
1: still, we, we need to, we need to stop freaking out so much about cases. Um, It's, it's the hard metrics that we really need to be watching. And yes, there will be a lag and we won't know probably until, you know, a month from now, uh, just how much hospitalization and uh, and death that this variant is going to cause, but I'm you know willing to bet that it will be significantly less so than we saw with uh, with previous variants, you know, on a proportional basis. So yeah I, again, I just we should probably wrap this part of the conversation up but uh, yeah I just I, I don't want people to be really concerned, you know, if you're a vaccinated person you um, You've, you've done what you need to do again, get your booster when you're eligible, uh, but every one of us is going to get COVID eventually. Uh, but even if you do, if you're fully vaccinated, there is, you know, a far less than 1% chance that you're going to wind up in the hospital or have a bad outcome. And I really hope that's reassuring to people um, on a, on a, just at the individual level and in terms of, you know, thinking about, about your loved ones. Um, we, we just, we, we can't end up in a scenario where we're not letting visitors and caregivers visit people in long-term care homes and hospitals. It is totally inhumane. I've seen too many people die without being allowed to have loved ones present. And it is, it's heartbreaking. Um, you know, these, these restrictions cause a, a lot of, a lot of harm. So I hope we don't get there. I just want people to be reassured that you know the the individual level risk is far better than it would seem when you're looking to media or wherever you're getting your information.
0: I just want to finish my uh, my question there. I know you're <laughs> you're trying to close this thing off, but I never <laughs> actually got around to to finishing the actual question. So okay. uh, assuming that it is the case that uh, that while uh, severeness of disease remains low, uh, long after initial vaccinations, but case rates in vaccinated people are rising. And I think we would both agree that, that case rates are not the metric that's worth paying attention to. But my question is the, what, what is the end when is the end and what is the way out because if the if the solution is okay well another booster and then in 6 months another booster and then in 6 months another booster that's not going to work and people are not some people will comply forever but especially when we are attaching your rights as a citizen to being vaccinated like what's going to happen if in ontario they say okay well those two doses well now you're 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 not vaccinated anymore and now you have to go get your third dose and we've seen this happen around the world right we've seen this happen in other places and it's not unreasonable to think that that's not going to happen here so from your perspective what is this what signifies the end not the end of the virus but the end of everything else that has come along with this that leads us to even have to have a conversation like this right now? Um, Probably
1: it's, uh, it's herd immunity. I I think that's, and the, the optimist in me sees something like this Omicron variant, which is a highly much more transmissible, but milder disease, potentially being the ticket to, to effective herd immunity. So, I mean, it's, it's going to go no matter what we do and we can do our best to slow it down, but it's, it's, it's going to go. And that might actually work in our favor to, you know, I, I hope again, optimistically that that potentially signifies the beginning of the end and that, you know, enough people will be exposed then, um, to either recharge their immunity from, uh, from vaccination, um, or if they haven't had it, then they're at least being exposed to a variant for the first time. That's, um, that's less risky, less dangerous, um, if that's the case and it flies through enough of the population, then yeah, we we could end up in in a better herd immunity situation. That being said, though, I mean these coronaviruses they're annual endemic viruses, and so there will be seasonal recurrence. There will be variations that come up, just like influenza every single year. You know, we we were living with the influenza virus. Uh, we would anticipate every year there was going to be hospitalizations, there was going to be death, we took our best guess at a vaccination, like that's basically what we need to get to and we need to be comfortable with accepting that uh, COVID zero is never going to happen, it's not a reasonable goal, um, and that we're, we're going to be living with this virus uh, indefinitely, and You know, hopefully there's, we learn from all of our experiences through this and we don't need to close society down again every time a new respiratory virus comes around the corner.
0: Can you, can you say something about uh, the recent history of the flu in uh, children? I know that this is, you know, this can be tricky waters for you, but parents are a very susceptible category to fear. Uh, for obvious reasons, and for their kids. And if you didn't know otherwise, you would believe that COVID is exponentially more dangerous to your young child than the flu is, which is statistically, after almost two years, not the case. So as a physician, can you shed some light on that for parents, not to minimize the risk of COVID, but to be more realistic when... it's not, I think comparison with the flu is helpful for parents because the flu is something that parents understand and have had lots of experience with. So in order to manage a parent's emotions so that they can, you know, make the proper decisions every day, I find it's a helpful mar- marker to say, well, when you compare this to that, this is the reality. Yeah, agreed. So before the
1: pandemic, every year, we were all okay with understanding that your kid could get the flu, they could get RSV, they could get croup, they could get, you know, any of these other respiratory illnesses, usually seasonally, Um, they would be sick for a few days, some would definitely have a a bad outcome, especially those again, with underlying comorbidities. But those were the things that would send kids to hospital, needing oxygen and therapeutics, um, every January, February, March, um, that's been going on forever. And we, we didn't mask them. We didn't, uh, disallow them from playing team sports or getting together with their friends, uh, or play dates or whatever it is. Um, and if you look at a, a bit just on an epidemiologic basis, those infections are far more dangerous than COVID-19 has been for the same age group. Um, So yeah, if you're, if you're making the decision to pull your kid out of sports and social activities and seeing their friends on the basis of COVID, um, then you should have been doing that all along. (laughs) Right. So uh, because this, this is actually less of a concern for,
0: uh, for the young, young kids. How much time do you want to spend, here because i, I have <laughs> i have endless amounts of questions in places that i can continue to take this uh but i don't want to keep pushing you down a road that you that you just want to wrap up if you feel like you said everything yes. that yeah 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 i i think i i do think i've said everything that
1: um that i wanted to get out there in terms of messaging today so i i would like to, to and flip some it, to <laughs> flip it over to uh more of a, you know,
0: jovial tone <laughs> and back yeah. to the cardio metabolic health, uh, gambit. We should probably just make this a two-parter with a clear line <laughs> drawn between the conversation we just had and the conversation we are about to have.
1: Sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. can be my job. So okay. then uh, is there anything you want to say in closing about this whole thing? The general message I got is being precautious. And being considerate is warranted. Being afraid at this point is not helpful, uh, unnecessary, and probably not doing anyone any good.
1: Totally. Don't be afraid. Get a good mask. Um, And get together with your family and your friends in small groups over the
0: holidays, because we all need that for our mental health and well-being. I don't. I need the opposite. (laughs) I need, I need to be in a cabin somewhere in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) That's what I need.
1: There are exceptions to every rule. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose they say like one to 2% of society are sociopaths. So
0: that does it for part one of this conversation between Dr. Appleton and I in part two, we get into holiday eating not just food strategy and eating strategies to come out on the other end of the holiday with less physical and emotional damage, but also the importance of managing mindset, managing relationships, and how to recruit people onto your side so everyone can have a healthy, happy, joyous holiday. We'll see you on the next episode. The content provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical advice and is not intended to be a substitute for independent professional medical judgment, advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I mean, clearly not when I'm speaking. I'm not a doctor. But that goes for the real doctor, Dr. Appleton, as well. You should always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions or concerns you may have regarding your health. You should never disregard or delay seeking medical advice relating to treatment or standard of care because of information contained in or transmitted. Huh? Transmitted? Yes, information contained in or transmitted in this podcast.